Two and a Half Admins, episode 42. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a blog post to promote, Alan. Detrace Network Probes. Yes. So Tom Jones wrote us a great little article about how to uh, take advantage of the static probes uh, that are in FreeBSD for detracing the network. So being able to get information about TCP and UDP packets as they pass through the network, rather than using the normal boundary tracing, you can actually get static probes uh, that are specific to the protocol and how you can use those to debug your network. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first is that Fastly went down and took half the internet with it, seemingly, for an hour. I don't know if it was half. It was specific websites. Specific websites, including very large ones like, uh, you know, Reddit and uh, the UK government website. I don't know if Joe noticed that or not, but uh, UK.gov was down. I was fast asleep. I didn't know that they uh, outsourced things to a CDN. (laughs) That's interesting. I remember bidding to be the CDN for the Canadian government's website about earthquakes. Mm. They're like, we almost get no traffic ever. But when we get traffic, we get all of the traffic. (laughs) You know, because once there's an earthquake, everybody wants all the information. The one that I thought was funny is Twitter was mostly unaffected, except uh, Twitter doesn't use Unicode emojis. It uses graphical emojis in place of them. And apparently it hosted those on Fastly. So emoji was broken for about an hour on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> JavaScript libraries tend to get hosted on a CDN. You know, some of the big ones like jQuery was on Google when that first became a thing, when Google started offering their free CDN for popular JavaScript libraries or whatever. But Fastly did kind of the same thing. And so you end up with a lot of these libraries that even if you don't use Fastly as a CDN for your website or have never heard of Fastly, if your website uses one of these uh, JavaScript libraries that happens to pull its content from Fastly, if they're down, suddenly your website maybe isn't down, but you know the emojis don't work or the CSS doesn't render properly because of the missing JavaScript. Yeah, broken CSS is one of the big things you usually notice with a down CDN because a lot of websites will serve, they'll serve the actual HTML page themselves, but all the static pieces will go through a CDN. So that'll be your CSS, your images, uh, JavaScript, uh, you know, JavaScript libraries, all that kind of thing. So when you see a site load, but like everything is in plain, completely unstyled text and looks god awful, that's usually because, you know, the reference to the CSS out on a CDN is no longer working. Yep. I remember helping with the newspaper's website when Michael Jackson died. And, you know, even like CNN had to revert to like the no CSS version of their website that was just static HTML because they just couldn't handle the load and had to give up the ad impressions and they were crying about it. <laughs> Somewhere in heaven, you heard a faint. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we basically configured uh, Nginx to save a copy of the HTML every time it successfully served it. So when the backend fell over, we could serve a slightly stale static file and at least keep most of the web page working. Yeah, but these days, a lot of sites are serving everything through the CDN, um, you know, including the main page itself. So instead of seeing a page that's largely there, but, you know, pieces are missing or it's ugly and unskinned, you get just nothing but a plain, in this case, guru meditation, because uh, Fastly is based on the Varnish cache server. Yes. Well, the thing that people found interesting is that Fastly changed the message slightly. Instead of the normal guru meditation that it normally says, there it says guru mediation. That blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? That's that? How? What? (laughs) I think the reason they did that, this is just my own speculation, is so that when their customer is also using Varnish, they can tell the difference between their error message and the customer's Varnish's error message. You'd think they could have done it in a more informative way than just like leaving out the letter T. (laughs) 
Well, uh, in particular, there's uh, an article here from uh, Paul Henningkamp, the author of Varnish, explaining why the guru of meditation error is so simple and has no information. Mostly because it can't have any information. Right. Uh, because all it does, it has your request and it knows I couldn't serve it, but it doesn't know why or where it was supposed to go or who you were or what you were in the middle of doing. And it wants to make sure that it doesn't spend more time making an error message than it would have spent making the actual content because then that becomes an attack vector to take out the CDN by making it give you error messages, which are more work than serving the real content. I just meant something more informative along the lines of, you know, saying fastly guru meditation or even yes. just fastly meditation or just fastly error. Well, I think part of it's also you don't want your thing to come up in search results for the error message. Hmm. So, you know, don't put your name on the error message. <laughs> Because that's the wrong kind of marketing. So there's a summary of the outage, summary of June 8 outage on Fastly's website. And it says, on May 12th, we began a software deployment that introduced a bug that could be triggered by a specific customer configuration under specific circumstances. Early June 8th, a customer pushed a valid configuration change that included the specific circumstances that triggered the bug, which caused 85% of our network to return errors. A customer with a valid configuration change. Ouch. Well, so the way Varnish works is it doesn't have a configuration file like you think of a normal web server. It is basically has a program and you compile the configuration and it's linked in as if it was a shared library as part of the program. It reads a lot like firewall rules. It's called VCL, Varnish Control Language. And um, you can tell it exactly how you want to behave in all kinds of different circumstances. So, uh, so yeah, like I say, it, it looks a lot more like firewall rules than a web server config. But basically, it's the sum of all the configs that you have loaded get compiled into this program. And then you just start at the top and you enter one of the functions like, uh, you know, VCL fetch or return or whatever, and it executes. And so one bad line in there and it all goes to hell. Yeah, because everybody's configs basically have to all get conglomerated together unless you're running individual varnish instances, you know, for each customer with different IP addresses and the whole nine. And if we thought they might have been doing that, now we know better. It sounds like this could happen again then. Theoretically. I'd like they're they were very vague about what the configuration change was or what the bug was. Uh, I don't know if that's because it's something that's in Varnish and that needs to get, you know, a new release with a fix before they tell everybody how to take out everybody else's varnish. Uh, or if they're maybe still just worried that we're gonna wait until we have a fix before we tell everybody what it was, or they're just never gonna go into that level of detail. I would have to speculate that it's just something to do with gluing all the individual customer settings together in one file. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of ways, there's a lot of ways that you could create conflicting stanzas in a, you know, single VCL that would cause an overall error. So they're going to need some kind of error checking to keep customer configs from conflicting with one another. And my best guess, and again, now this is speculation. I do not have any exact detail on this, but, um, I would guess that it just allowed conflicting settings to get put together or else there was a, you know, a parsing and processing bug that literally put garbage into the syntax. We don't know. All we really know is there, there was some way that a customer could push their configs and the resulting universal varnish control language file was invalid. And then you get guru meditations or again, in this case, mediations. In my varnish configuration, we have an include file for each different site. And all the content for each of the functions for that site has to be guarded by an if, you know, match of their list of domains. 
that wouldn't scale to the level of Fastly. So I'm guessing they have some kind of domain hash table set up. And if putting your domain name matching string in in a certain way caused everything to match off you instead or to nobody's to match, uh, that could cause it. Because I, I think somewhere in, uh, I think originally uh, your or the Ars article, some people got a message about that domain is unknown. Yeah. And that's what made me think maybe specifically, normally the way you do it in the Varnish control language is you match on the domain name and then that's where you put each customer specific configuration. And if some people were getting, hey, I don't recognize that domain, it might be somehow something messed up the way they, they map the domains to each customer's configuration. That would make sense together with your also wildly <laughs> unsourced speculation about a you know hash table for domain lookups. It all makes sense. We we don't really have any way of knowing how exact that is or is not. What I will say is um, I was really impressed once they disclosed what the actual issue was that, you know, it was an issue from a month old software update that allowed a single customer's valid config to break the whole network. Knowing that, that it only took them an hour to get it resolved and everything, you know, back trundling along again, that was pretty impressive. An hour was already not a horrendously bad time to recover from, you know, uh, Joe pushed a really bad update and broke the whole network, you know, like right then immediately, which is what I think most people were assuming. Like, I think when Cloudflare had theirs like this and they accidentally pushed the firewall rule that blocked all TCP packets more than one byte more than the maximum TCP yeah. packet can ever be. And it took out their, it took them much more than an hour to fall back. Yeah, so I, I will say I am impressed with their response time on this one. It would not have been an impressive response time, but it wouldn't have been a terrible one if it had been what everybody initially thought, was just somebody pushed a terrible config and it broke everything immediately. But that was not the case. They didn't know going into it why everything was broken. They started from scratch and figured it out and had it back up and running again within an hour, which that ain't bad. Yeah, one of the nice things about the way Varnish works, like we talked about with the compiled configs, is by default when you load a new one, it gets compiled in LinkedIn, but the old one doesn't go away. You just switch between them. And so it's actually very quick to switch back. But you have to know that that's the problem and that's going to be the solution. And, you know, you don't keep that many of the configs around, right? And so I'm guessing there's something like Fastly, more than one customer changed something that morning. <laughs> uh, and they don't want to roll back everybody's changes either. <laughs> it seems like a safe bet that more than one of Fastly customers touched their configs that day. <laughs> or, or, you know, even just the hour before it happened, or even the 20 minutes before it happened, I'm guessing the churn rate is high enough that it wasn't easy to just be like, let's do a, a git bisect and see which one of these causes the server to stop working. If I had to guess, I'd guess they acquire new customers at a higher rate than that. Exactly. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up, and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. 
So we're all aware of the colonial pipeline ransomware attack that happened last month and caused gas prices on the East Coast to go crazy. Did that affect you, Jim? Are you far enough east? Yeah, it did. Our gas was briefly up to like uh, $2.80, where it's normally down around like $1.80. Wow. Okay. So Colonial paid that ransom, and some of that ransom has actually been recovered. But we got a detail that's very interesting this week. So according to the Wall Street Journal, Joseph Blunt, I think that's how you say it, of Colonial Pipeline, confirmed that investigators believe Russia-based hackers broke into his computer system by logging into an out-of-use virtual private network that lacked the routine requirement for the user to provide a second method of identity verification. So no 2FA and a VPN account that wasn't even in use but hadn't been disabled. So somebody that didn't work there anymore, using their VPN account, and by the sounds of it, with a password they had used on some other site that got compromised, and so it was on a password list somewhere, and no 2FA. So, you know, when you hear about hacks like this, you're kind of picturing in your mind something like that happens in the movies and some elite hacker thing. And this was most likely just brute force attempting username and password combinations from other compromises when somebody broke into a database and people stored passwords in plain text or whatever, and just breaking in and the company not having two-factor. Not only is that not a brute force, that's not even a dictionary attack. I mean, that's just literally trying a list of known, you know, usernames and passwords. And uh, yeah, this is how compromise usually happens, honestly. Um, Every system has at least one single point of failure, usually human. Because people have speculated that it was phishing, but apparently not then. They don't think so. It, you know, it's hard to tell for sure. We, we talked about just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, you know, while patching your stuff is important, don't worry about the last 10% of that when you've not worried about the easy 90% of the other things. So that is have expiration dates on accounts and actually bump them up when the person still works there. And this way, if you forget that someone doesn't work there anymore, their account expires. And if they still work there, they'll call you and nag. But at least you don't end up with a bunch of accounts for people that don't work there anymore still having access to things they shouldn't. Blunt is the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, and he told Congress that the company believes that the hackers infiltrated Colonial through an old virtual private network that was, quote, not intended to be in use, unquote. So... There is some question as to whether the CEO of a gas pipeline company has any idea of the difference between an unused VPN and an unused VPN account. But what he stated was that it was an entirely unused VPN. But it also says that the company believes that's how the criminals infiltrated. So who knows? I'm a little pissed off that Blunt said the company, if the company hadn't paid ransom to Darkseid, that the damage could have been much worse. Like, Why and how? Because what's been widely reported is that although they paid the ransom, they quickly discovered that the decrypting tool was too slow, so they just said forget it and went back to backups anyway. Right, most of the disruption was they shut things down to make sure the hackers couldn't accidentally cause an explosion or something. Right. So yes, it could always have been worse, but... (laughs) That's one of the things that's actually really annoyed me about that story is it's like... You gave these people millions of dollars to keep doing the same thing and incentivize them to just keep making this their literal career, and you got nothing from it. You just threw money at these people. And, you know, now lots and lots of frequently much smaller and more vulnerable businesses that don't have, you know, the federal government backing them up you know, are, are going to be getting hit by these same techniques because these people just got millions of funding. 
Well, except that the US Department of Justice has recovered 63.7 of the 75 Bitcoins. Which is nice, but we can't exactly give Plunt and Pipeline credit for that. No. I noticed the, I think it was the FBI and the DOJ were being a bit cagey about how they managed to do that. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think they want to tip the rest of people using Bitcoin of how they did it. But I'm guessing it wasn't by, you know, breaking Bitcoin or something. It was by... The $10 crowbar. Yeah. The, the rubber hose cryptography. <laughs> people always forget about the $10 crowbar. So Norton Lifelock Boo. has introduced a new feature where you can mine cryptocurrency, specifically Ethereum for now, but maybe some others in the future. So while your computer's idle, why not do some CPU mining? That's going to be really <laughs> profitable for you. It's like executives at Norton were sitting around a table and going, you know, IT people just don't hate us enough, and we've made this product as crappy as we can. What can we possibly do to get more <laughs> hatred from IT professionals? I know. Bitcoin. Yeah, it's as if your virus scanner, or in scare quotes, wasn't making your computer slow enough. Now it's using that CPU time to mine Ethereum. Schemes like this were bad enough in, you know, like the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, I say schemes, and a lot of the stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s wasn't schemes. You know, it was people very deliberately using, quote, idle, unquote, CPU resources, you know, for things like protein folding and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And those are noble goals. And that was a great use of the distributed computing. But one of the reasons that, uh, you know, those programs are not quite as much in favor as they used to be is people very rapidly discovered, holy crap, looks what happens to my power and heating bill, you know, when my formerly idle computer is now running balls to the wall 24-7 doing this stuff. Well, that was bad enough in the early 2000s when most people didn't even have a dual core CPU yet. Now you got people, I mean, it is perfectly normal. Like it's not even a badass machine to have, you know, like eight cores and 16 threads on an AMD box. I mean, you're talking like a $300 CPU. Laptops have that now. The difference between idle and flat out now is so tremendously higher than it was in the year 2000. So now when you say, oh, well, I'll just use these idle resources, what you're, you know, the idle resource you're talking about is not your computer, it's your freaking power bill. But hang on, Jim. According to Norton. Oh, here we go. For years, many coin miners have had to take risks in their quest for cryptocurrency, disabling their security in order to run coin mining and allowing unvetted code on their machines that could be skimming from their earnings or even planting ransomware. What? You have to think here. If you're an actual tech, not know how to do it person, uh, and you just Google, like, how do I mine Bitcoins? Of course, somebody's made a very easy to use tool that helps you mine Bitcoins and only gives you, you know, one tenth of the income from it. Or, you know, there's spyware embedded in the first 10 results for how to mine Bitcoin on Google. So I can see their point, although I don't think I trust Norton anymore. Well, no, 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 no. That would be their point if they'd said this keeps you from accidentally downloading the wrong application. But what they actually said is that these people, and this is not an accurate statement, but what they're actually saying is that before now you had to disable your AV to mine for coins, which no, you absolutely did not if you did. It's because your AV vendor incorrectly flagged positives on legitimate applications, which whose fault is that going to be? It's that same vendor that's now crowing about how they've built it directly into your antivirus. 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. I've just started my learning journey with CBT Nuggets, but I've already picked up tons of knowledge from the short and manageable videos in the Docker and Network Fundamentals courses. Their in-house trainers are active and certified IT professionals who add around 40 hours of new training to the course catalog each week, so you can always stay current and up to date. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, or feedback generally, show at 2.5admins.com. Or if you're a patron, you can submit your question there and skip the queue, which is exactly what Thor did. So he said, I'm trying to find a way to back up data to a friend's server without my friend being able to read that data. Not that I don't trust my friend, but they don't need my data. The idea is that would be each other's off-site backup. Can I encrypt a ZFS volume and then send it to my friend's server, given that he's running ZFS? Or does that require giving me access to his pool or vice versa? I'm stuck. I could have one large encrypted volume, say, in VeraCrypt, but then I would probably need to send the entire thing every time I change a line in a file in the volume. Am I stuck until there's a usable implementation of fully homomorphic encryption? No, you're not stuck. What you're looking for is ZFS raw send. Uh, raw send will send your already encrypted data set to another server and incorporate it into the pool without requiring that that server or its operator have the key. So you can still do asynchronous incremental replication that Alan and I you know, know, love, and have been preaching to you for uh, 40-some-odd episodes now. But the other side won't be able to read the data, even though it's all, you know, included there. You can then replicate that data back to yourself in the event of a disaster and then just apply the key and unlock it once you have it. Fully homomorphic encryption actually is a complete boondoggle as far as this goes. What FHE actually is, is encryption that you can still do mathematical operations on. So with fully homomorphic encryption, if you encrypt two and three, you can still add them together and get the encrypted version of five. That's what homomorphic encryption, fully homomorphic, actually means. And uh, that has no bearing on what you're trying to do here, which is just raw send. Yeah, so the raw send is the answer. Because with the way, with the way ZFS works, you can use ZFS load key and ZFS unload key to load and unload the encryption key. And basically, when you do the raw send, you're sending the already encrypted version without the key. And the only way for them to use it on their side is to run ZFS load key and enter the password or have the key file. And as long as you don't give it to them, they can't but you can still send it back and then you can load the key on your computer even if it's a reinstall of your computer and it'll work. The key thing is make sure when you're doing the send that you're using the raw flag. Otherwise, ZFS will decrypt it and then send it in the clear. In case that's still a little bit unclear, the net effect of this is basically similar to if your computer got stolen with at-rest encryption. Uh, they have possession of the data, but it's all encrypted and they have no way to get at it. The other thing that I'll mention is Alan and I always like to rant, and today is no different. Backups, backups, backups. Make sure you have a backup of your key because your backup partner doesn't. Uh, especially if you're using a key file, for sure. 
If your computer dies and you want to go restore the backup, well, the whole point of that backup was in case your computer died, but it was the only thing that had the encryption key. Uh oh. And a thumb drive is not an appropriate offline cold backup of the key because they do not live all that long. <laughs> yeah, you definitely want uh, a couple of copies of that. You know, maybe one of them like printed out as the hex or a QR code or something and laminated and put in a firebox or something. One of the things ZFS encryption doesn't have at the moment that I would like to add to it is the concept of having more than one key to have like a recovery key. Less use in, in this particular situation, but if you're in a more of a corporate situation, the corporate security officer should probably have a key to decrypt Joe's data set in case Joe quits and won't give us his encryption key and we still need access to the files we paid him to make. <laughs> or, you know, if Joe forgets it and would like the security officer to, uh, to you know, unscrew that for him. <laughs> uh, but right now ZFS only supports one key, so you'd have to uh, not lose that key. You should have a little bit of tolerance for uh, figuring things out if you're wanting to do ZFS raw send. It does work in general, but I see a lot more reports of things going a little bit hinky and weird with raw send than I do with anything else in ZFS. The ZFS native encryption and raw send are both relatively new. I think mostly some of the older tools don't support it very well. What about Sanoid? Well, not Sanoid, but Syncoid. Syncoid does support it uh, in the sense that you can pass in the, what is it, dash capital W, I think option to ZFS send to do the raw send. So yeah, it, it does support it as long as you know what option to pass to it. But again, um, it's this is not a syncoid issue. It's an issue with the replication itself. There's a lot of ways to get it subtly wrong that can end up breaking your replication until you figure out what you did. So my big question is, what does Thor's friend have to do here? Like how much preparation on that end needs to take place? Ah, Good point. So you want to set up a user for your friend and do the ZFS allow stuff to allow them to create a new sub data set. But you don't want to create the data set yet because ZFS encryption has to be enabled as you create the data set. It can't be done after because everything written to the data set is encrypted with that key. So basically you use ZFS allow to allow your friend to receive to this part of your pool you've set aside for them and not be able to touch any of your other stuff. And then you'll allow them basically to ZFS send and receive from their part of your pool, but not the rest of your pool. So you make sure that they can't send your files back to their server either. You also don't create the data set ahead of time because that's not how ZFS replication works. The data set on the target has to be created by the initial full replication process. If you ZFS create my data set on both pools first and then try to replicate, it will never, ever, ever work. Okay, Chris says, I'm about to head overseas for work purposes. Where I'm going has no internet restrictions, so I'll not have any trouble accessing any services while abroad. However, I'm looking to host a cost-efficient off-site low-power server in the United States for off-site backups and VPN access to get around geo-restrictions by the likes of Netflix and Amazon. I've had some success in the past having a site-to-site VPN nailed up between two ASUS routers using OpenVPN. However, this time, I'm going to have Proxmox hosts at either end, both running virtual instances of OpenSense. The instance in the US will be hosted at a friend's home on a residential gigabit cable modem service and will be behind NAT with relevant ports forwarded to my virtual OpenSense instance if necessary. Wondering if you have any recommendations. 
I'm considering pairing up the local OpenSense VPN instance at my residence abroad with a physical interface on my Proxmox server connected to a Wi-Fi access point for devices that need to connect via the VPN all the time. For example, Amazon Fire TV devices. I had a very bad feeling about this one until he got to the part about, you know, the U.S. instance being hosted at a friend's house. Because a lot of people have the idea that I'll just stand up, you know, a VM at Linode, for example, and I'll route all my traffic through that. And let me tell you what, Netflix and Amazon know what Linode and similar data centers are and know that they should not be streaming traffic to it, and they will refuse to do it in a heartbeat. So the fact that he's hosting it at a friend's house is crucial. That's what makes this actually possible for what he really wants to do with it, which is, you know, stream traffic and appear to be doing so from the United States. His plan is quite good. OpenSense has WireGuard support, so he can replace that janky old OpenVPN with WireGuard, which will help things considerably. Basically, it sounds like he's got the right idea for all these things, and it'll just work. The only thing that I might add, um, if there is any issue with uh, you know port forwarding at his friend's house to get public access, you can work around that by having, uh, for example, a Linode $5 VM and you know doing an ABC kind of a thing. So you have an outbound tunnel initiated to the Linode VM from both your friend's house and wherever you are overseas. And the initiation is outbound, so you don't need to punch any holes in firewalls. But once the tunnel is established, everything just works and you can do what you need to do. Probably not necessary. Yeah, but it, it's, it's a way to get around firewall-related issues should you have them. In particular, if your friend starts, you know, getting guff from his ISP about, you know, tons of inbound UDP traffic, some ISPs can be really weird about that. And that avoids that issue. The other thing you might consider doing, particularly if you have to go that route, is uh, now this would involve a little bit more work since you can't just do it all inside OpenSense. But you might consider Nebula rather than WireGuard. If you use Nebula rather than WireGuard, then even if you do have a lighthouse out in the cloud, you'll still end up with a direct, you know, A to C communication link with higher throughput, lower latency, and no worries about blowing through bandwidth allotments, you know, at your Linode or, uh, you know, other hosting. Because once the tunnel is initiated, it will be directly between your overseas location and your U.S. location rather than routing all traffic through your, you know, cloud VM the, the way that we discussed before. I also like this idea of just uh, wiring up the virtual interface to a Wi-Fi access point and basically just having a second Wi-Fi node in your house that just says, this one goes via the VPN and getting your Amazon Fire Stick or whatever to use that. Yeah, that's good stuff. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.